0: you are listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and
1: marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show. Welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Motier, and I have the pleasure to welcome Chris Duggett, who is Chief yes. Sales Officer at Fuse. How are you doing today, Chris? I'm doing well, Aurélien. How are you? I am very good, thank you. So the topic for today is quite a broad one, as we had the opportunity to discuss in preparation to the podcast. It's about scaling sales in fast-growing B2B tech companies. So that's a bit of a mouthful, and I think the topic itself is, is full of full of interesting sub-items. But before we go into the detail of the conversation, would you mind introducing yourself and what you do for Fuse at the moment?
0: Not at all. So I'm the chief sales officer at Fuse, but really my responsibility is around all of sales and yeah. also professional services. Okay. So for us, that's about how we deliver, activate and configure and deliver our service to to customers, including helping them with adoption, moving from a legacy system to the cloud. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, and everything that comes with transforming their organization. Okay. That sounds
1: fascinating. So you have an extensive experience. You've been working with lots of different organizations. Some of the, the ones that we picked up was Sophos, UK company that you helped grow outside of the UK, Kaspersky, Russian organization that you helped to grow outside of Russia. So... Basically, what I'm getting to with my first question is that you've got a, a ton of experience in working with lots of different companies at different stages of their growth with markets that are a different level of maturity, but also in terms of fast-growing pace, maybe you know, in, a, in a different space. So my first question is really around, from your perspective, what are the signs that you need to identify as an organization to know that it's time to scale, but also how do you expand into different regions? It's a broad question. So, so it's, a, it's a great question. And there is
0: a lot to talk about, as you yeah. mentioned, in, in terms of scalability. The first one, great, great question. How do you know when? What is the catalyst for looking at scalability? For a lot of companies, especially early stage companies, it tends to be driven by actually they're, they're reacting to something. So yeah. they may have a lot of inbound inquiries and they can't keep up with the lead flow sometimes. Yeah or they have partners if they have a partner model who are getting frustrated because the sales team is not being as responsive enough on quoting and on the sales process. That's another example. Um, You may actually see sometimes your sales managers who manage a team asking for more people and quota. And that's usually <laughs> a sign. Yes. They, all, they will always ask for more people and yeah. more resources and more leads, but when they're willing to take quota along with it, that's fine. then you know that they believe that there's an opportunity for growth. Absolutely. So you see lots of things where typically small companies are going to be more reactive because they're being more successful than they even planned on, which yeah. is great. Yeah. And they have to, to try to things in place to capture the opportunity. For larger companies, it tends to be more proactive. It tends to be more the result of a planning process. And when you're at a company, let's say you're at a company that's a 50 or a hundred million dollar company and your board of directors and your CEO says, we want to be a half a billion dollar company or a billion dollar company. Yeah. Well, you have to ask yourself, well, wow, how are we going to get there? change culturally, the yeah. game. Big exactly. goal, yeah. That's a very different size than yeah. where we are today. How are we going to do that? And that usually causes you to be more proactive. There's a famous quote from a hockey player, Wayne Gretzky. I'm sure you've heard it because we use it a lot in sales. Absolutely. But he said, I don't skate to where the puck is. I skate to where the puck is going to be. And it's like a I game guess. of chess. Yes. You have to think a few moves down the board to what's going to happen next. Yeah. And then work backwards from Absolutely. there. So sometimes the catalyst, the, the why you're doing scalability is actually that planning process. Okay. That makes
1: perfect sense. And what about the going into the different region? I mean, is it, do, do you think it takes different level of scaling or do you think the size of the company also matter in that sort of... If you're a large organization, you may be already in lots of regions, so you may be looking for more granularity. But what's the most complex? Do you think the most complex is for a small company to go into a new region or for a larger company to get more granularity in existing region?
0: It's a great question. I, I think when companies look at scaling and expanding, there's always a risk. Okay. And the risk is that they try to expand to scale in too many ways, yeah, geography is one, which is obvious, yeah, but geography is not actually the easiest way to scale your business up, potentially in some countries it's very hard to go from one country to another or one region to another because of business differences or cultural differences or even political differences, yes, yeah. yeah, and people think, oh, it'll be easy we we can we sell here, we can sell there, and sometimes it's the market is in a different place or or what you need to do to start a business there is very different. Something we've seen a lot more recently around privacy and security are Absolutely. regulations. Absolutely. Um, so geographical expansion is one way to expand, but you can also expand by going from, let's say, a direct sales model to a partner model. That can give you huge scalability. You can expand with products, with adding different products to the portfolio. Yeah. yeah. You can, of course, do something really simple, which is yes, an acquisition. You can you can acquire another team yeah. or build your team out just go you know start to to build out of so there are lots of ways to scale a business some of them are riskier and harder than others so
1: you mentioned something that like really like a kind of leading nicely bridging me to my next question which is around the channel so in in preparation to the podcast you you explained to me you know some of the stuff you've done with Sophos and helping them to build up the channel change the mentality really pushing the channel and you did that extremely successfully so could you please share with us in our audience your experience of scaling successfully through a channel? Again, a very wide open question, but if you can help me to break it down, it would be great.
0: No, absolutely. I'd be happy to. It is, it's something that, that is very near and dear to my heart. And the reason for that is I started out in my technology career in the channel. I actually worked for a large consulting company doing system integration work. And I later worked for a couple of consultancies yeah. um, that were very specialized around security. And so what happened was I learned how partners, different types of partners, run their businesses. And I learned about how much variety there is under that name, the channel. Mm-hmm. There are many, many, many different business models and approaches. And so the answer to your question about, about scaling by going, say, from a direct model to a channel, as we did at Sophos, for me, the most important thing about that is understanding first which types of partners yep. are the best ones for you to work with how they run their business, mm-hmm. the business model is for them, and therefore, how you can structure a program and a partnership that has the right value proposition for both you and your partners. So that when when they are approached by members of your team and, and people are trying to work with them, it's sort of an automatically a good fit Absolutely. because it's been structured properly mm-hmm. from the beginning. And I think that's that's really, really important. And you also need to recognize that there are a one-size-fits-all approach in channel is the wrong approach for pretty much any company because there will be p- types of partner models that work well for your business, and there are others that you probably won't be ready for. And one mistake I see companies make a lot is they think, "Well, I'm going to go with the biggest brand names." For example, you know the players in the channel that everybody has heard or of. Or would they care? Yeah. I mean, number one, do you have anything of real value? To, is it a big enough Correct. and valuable oh, enough for real, to, yeah. to get their attention, to even get their mind share? But number two, are you ready to partner with them from a, from a technology perspective, from an operational perspective, from yep. a, from a strategy, sales and marketing strategy perspective? Do you have the right tools at your disposal? If you don't, it's a mistake. You can spend a lot of time and energy on something that ultimately doesn't go anywhere. That just becomes a big wasted investment. So I think with respect to building, building channel programs, you, you must start from the partner and work back and you must understand what your best match is and the strengths that you have and, and the value that you can bring and structure it that way. And, and then plan to build out later. You can always start with small focused partners and expand to much bigger ones
1: as you get bigger. But going the other way sometimes doesn't work. So that brings me to another question about the one-tier and the two-tier, the distribution model, basically. So I would expect the one-tier to come first based on what you explained, that sort of organic growth. Mm-hmm. Maybe my understanding of what you're saying is like you should go for qualitative partner versus volume approach. So you find the right guys, the right people, people that will actually care about what you do, understand the value you can bring to their portfolio, understand the value you can bring to their end user, and basically understand that you will bring something to them that will either help them to keep a client or help them to increase the revenue generating from a client or help them to differentiate themselves in a competitive market versus another partner. Okay, so that's that's fine. Now come coming to the scalability, there is a scalability within the channel which is again, moving from a one tier to a two tier. And again, same question against you, which is a tough one and because it will depend on the size of of, of of organization, and and their their growth percentage or their gross curve is when would you say it's a good time to think about Twitter? When do you think it's mm. a time to say, okay, we're going to bring distribution, we're going to give a little bit more away because we just want to get the headache away from managing those sellers?
0: Yes. Yeah, it's a great question and it's one that people like us are often asked, yeah, uh, yeah. especially by, by executives and board members who,
1: your, the, your question. Yeah,
0: <laughs> who don't know the channel well or don't understand the model as well as, as perhaps they should. First of all, I think you're, you've you described the normal approach, which mm-hmm. is you start small and you, you look for a few quality partners that you can develop a strong partnership with. Yep. That's the, usually the first step in, in any type of channel program to try to go out and, and go a mile wide and an inch deep and sign up hundreds of partners and just give them a bunch of collateral and, and hope that somebody sells something is is often a big mistake. And usually with distribution, with a two-tier model, you're doing that, you're using distributors to scale mm-hmm. because they have immediate access. They provide immediate access to thousands of partners mm-hmm. in any given geography. And they can on a high scale basis, they can go out and and help you with communications, with your value prop, with recruitment and training. and But really, distributors, fundamentally, were originally about scale in terms of logistics. Yeah. And in terms of billing. own things like house. this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have to realize that's where their, their fundamental strength lies, is scale. Yeah. Large-scale channel operations. And you, of course, will get there at some point. I think you know you get there when you have a large enough channel business not just the number of partners but the volume of deals that you're doing that it begins to strain your operational capacity that's often a time and that operational capacity by the way might be the quoting process or it might be the billing process or you know it might be a number of different things for companies that are respons- that make physical products it's certainly inventory is a big Absolutely. big piece of the puzzle for software companies it's it's not it's, it's not support? inventory related but some of these other functions I think when you, when you begin to feel the strain of growth and you, you hit the limit of your own scalability is when two-tier logically comes into play. However, if you wait too long, it becomes difficult because that, that last piece you mentioned about giving them a few points, so to speak, essentially you're going to be paying distribution. By the time you get fairly big, it's usually millions of millions of dollars that, mm-hmm. that are those few points. And if you wait too long, that can, put, can pose some challenges in the, the short-term planning process you know i've been asked before by a board member how do we replace the revenue that's that, going to the distribution that's, that we are now giving to the distributor effectively mm-hmm. and the answer is by unleashing that that scalability yeah. by by taking you know having the right programs in place and taking trading some margin for for a lot more scale for yeah. a lot yeah. more volume and it's the old you-can-make-it-up-on-volume equation. That, that, so that makes sense. My caution is don't wait too late, though, because the further along you get, the, the more, quote-unquote, expensive it is, so
1: to speak. And the biggest
0: the move will be
1: as well as, a, I guess, from a sales decision, if you've got millions and millions, the biggest impact will be from a board perspective, from you know, influencing above your head type of perspective making people understand that it's much more to give away, basically.
0: Exactly, which is often the biggest challenge in going from a direct to a channel sales model are actually the, the people who are in senior management or executives or board members who perhaps don't understand the model. You, you get these crazy questions like, wait a minute, how does this make sense? We're going to pay them this much in commission or this much in margin? I know you and I talked about that yeah. earlier. And for me,
1: it's a question of, sh- of making sure they understand the whole picture of yeah. the strategy. And this is, it, it makes sense. Do you have to give them a time frame because this time frame must be extremely difficult to gain because you probably know what you can drive, but uh, you're kind of driving someone to drive someone else. So, it's time frame has got to be very difficult to decide as well.
0: It is because usually things take longer to go from zero to 60 in the channel model than, than, should, uh, than a quarter or two, and yeah. then, yeah, then your management team wants. But um, again, this, way, this is why it comes back to okay. strategy and to this
1: topic of scalability. Absolutely. So um, another way that we've heard a lot, and as you know, we've got a mixture of clients. We've got some very well-established, very famous Mm -hmm. clients, Mm -hmm. but we've also got a bunch of startups and uh, organizations that have probably less of brand awareness. You know, people don't speak about them in the streets and people don't tweet about them, et cetera, et cetera. but what we see, a lot of organizations scaling through, converting inbound leads, generating a lot of inbound demands online, and then they've got big teams converting that, and you know, basically growing sales through not just World of Mars, but really a marketing machine. So again, I'm asking you the question of the time frame and, and the, the what stage, but at what point do you think a vendor can really start to rely more or solely rely on those inbounds, on, on generating revenues through marketing, basically?
0: It's a great question. And, and I think the answer often is similar to the, to the question about two-tier model. Companies want to get to the point where they've, they start to develop some real brand awareness in their market and actually brand pull. Yeah, where customers are asking partners about your solution, and where customers—we know that that customers today spend sixty or more percent of the of the buying process doing their own research, talking to peers, mm-hmm. reading reviews, whether they're to the channel as well. Yes, speaking to the channel, getting getting references and of course doing online research, reading research reports, et cetera, they do up to 60% of the effort of the, of the decision-making process happens before they ever contact you as a vendor. Mm-hmm. So if you have good brand pull, if you have good brand awareness, you will usually be part of the selection set when the window of opportunity, when, when yep. the customer is entering a buying cycle is happening. Yep. That's what you want. That's the end state. But of course, for a startup, as you mentioned, for you have many startups you work with, They don't have a multi-million dollar marketing budget or for that matter, a multi-million dollar advertising budget to go out and canvas every airport and and every radio station and and all of that. And um, and so the I think the answer to the question is the point when you can really heavily rely on on marketing is when you when you reach that point of brand awareness starting to to go mainstream. Okay. That that brand pull I'm talking about starting to happen. Yeah. Up until then, you really have to work hard often with startups first with a direct sales team and then going out and trying to proactively reach out and contact prospects. And that of course is an expensive, difficult model. It's an expensive model. It doesn't scale well. Yeah, yeah. You can only scale your sales team so big if they're proactively Absolutely. you know, cold calling and, and doing outreach. And I think the way that you do that is you start with a focused approach on which customers you're going after, yeah. size, Industry,
1: so more of an account-based approach. More of an account-based yeah. marketing
0: approach, which buyers within the company, etc. And you and you make sure you've got a really good value prop and, and and an inbound approach to get their attention. And of course that you can meet a, a real need that they have. That mm-hmm. there's a strong why and, yeah. and why now for your solution. And and of course with sales teams, you have to also teach them how to disqualify early and often.
1: You don't want them to hug the opportunity. That's right. And I think that's the problem with inbound. In you know, not so long ago I was. I was invited to, to an organization that had an inside sales team, and I was having a meeting for another complete different reason, but the CMO asked me the question and so said, we've, we've got an issue. we create more inbounds, but we've got less deals. So basically, we increase the marketing input drastically by a stronger percent, but we don't really see our closing rate evolving. We mm-hmm. don't see, you know, and actually it's going down because we get the same sort of deals for more leads, so it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I think I may know what the issue is. And we went to the floor and they managed to put all the guys together. And I said, well, how many of you guys have heard a prospect telling you last month? So those guys were selling. They were actually quota carrying inside reps. I said, how many of you guys have you seen or have you heard a prospect last month saying you saying to you? I am very sorry. I really, 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 really wanted to buy your stuff. But my boss decided to go with that other company. And I am so disappointed. I'm so annoyed. I really wanted to give you the deal. and probably 90% of them raise their hands. And I said, how many of you have heard that more than three times last month? And I probably had another 50% of the way that they raised their hand up, put the other arm up. And what I told them, I so you're just barking at the wrong tree. You know? mm-hmm. And what you've got with inquiry, the people who actually do the research, the people who will spend time doing things, etc., make you feel very comfortable in the sales process. I mean, probably you've been in enough sales process to realize that authority is very important. And sometimes selling a big deal is not to a nice person. It's actually someone who will challenge you and you challenge them back and it's a bit of a healthy battle to get to where you want to be. But when you are a bit more of an earlier, you know, less mature, I guess, self-individual, find that someone respond to the phone. Someone calls you back, they respond to your email, makes you feel very good. Basically, it makes you forecast something based on how great you feel about it rather than qualifying properly. So that that was my little story to to highlight the, the point that you just made.
0: You're absolutely right. And this is a very, very common problem, especially in, in younger companies or smaller companies with younger sales teams. Cold calling and outreach is hard. Yeah, it's hard, especially, you know, because you, you have to get a lot of no's before somebody will even talk to you. And, and, and so, you, of course, you, as you say, you hug that opportunity. If somebody's, ta- oh, somebody's talking to me, I want to do this. It's a great first step, but it's only a foot in the door, as they say. We talk about it, our company, with the sales team that I work with, going about going wide in the account. And, That's critical. And That's the point I was a just champion. about to make.
1: Yes. But sometimes so people important. just rely on that inbound. So I an inbound from Chris. Chris is a nice guy. He's my champion within the account. What does that mean? You have to be the champion, not that guy. That's right. Just go and speak to people. Why are you using someone to go and speak to you on your behalf to other people who does that?
0: That's right. So you have to, you have to build a strong team, champion and you have to test your champion. Absolutely. Right? You have to... You have to be able to make sure that your champion, maybe not the decision maker, but is someone with influence, Mm -hmm. someone who you can work with to understand the needs of the organization and build a strong business case, a value proposition for that customer, and that you can equip your champion to then go to the decision maker, to the economic buyer and say, look, we need to go with this company for this reason, and here's what it's going to do for us. And usually that person, as you said, who's doing the research is just a person who can get you to your champion will not be your champion. Mm-hmm. And the economic buyer, the decision maker or decision makers in yeah. the process are even going to be above your champion. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to go wide in terms of understanding the needs of the organization and you
1: have to go up. Yeah. And usually that's the, the it's, a, it's, it's again an a base. I mean, from my perspective, marketing is like a clue in a murder investigation. That's a great right? analogy. You just got to... And marketing is not responsible to produce business. If not, we would not exist as salespeople, I guess. You know, it'd be so easy. It's about getting that clue and working from that clue. And it, and sometimes what we see, which is, which is frustrating, is disposition. Get an inbound. Is it the right guy now? Mm-hmm. Not the right level of authority. Blah, blah, blah. Not saying the same thing. Not been qualified. Move on. Well wait a second, let's look at the CRM system, how many touches have had yeah. in the past, et cetera. So all those things are actually, we think, very important. And I think you do it more the larger the account. Obviously, the smaller yes. the If you're getting a 10-man company, you probably want to have run right. Yeah, you have to just go quickly. Exactly, yeah. But the largest is this. <laughs> Well, that should be another, another topic completely for a podcast, but it's a, such a great topic. Well, and with your
0: permission, I, will, I love the analogy of, yeah. of it being a clue in a murder mystery. Yeah. And I had never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. As you're scaling a company and building a sales force and, and building more skills and acumen in your sales force, it's very similar to detectives yeah. in, in, a, in a police department, right? The, if you think about it, you have to teach them what are the clues to look for. Who do you talk to and what questions do you ask them to get to, to to figure out the story? Yeah. And what are the patterns that you look for? It's the same thing in Absolutely. sales when
1: you're doing this type of an approach. And then you can replicate that pattern. You know, you just, you know exactly. what the pattern is with experience. You just know in which situation you are, which is your user case and off you go.
0: And very good detectives yeah. can get to the get to figure out who is responsible for the crime very quickly. Absolutely.
1: And with a lot of accuracy. Coming to this point, so I'm, I'm getting to my favorite question I think that I wanted to ask you, so I've been burning for it. So, obviously, looking at your CV from a long time after, it looks like it was an easy road to scale. The like lack of Sophos, the like lack of Kaspersky, which you had first was a walk in the park, you've done so well. We we'll look at it from now, Thank it's you. fantastic. But, very kind. But when you probably did it on a daily basis, I would have expected a tremendous amount of tension, tremendous amount of pressure a tremendous amount of impatience, particularly from board CEOs and things like that. And that's probably not on a daily basis as glamorous as it looks when you look back now. Okay. But so that question, so I'm getting to my question, when scaling, what are the KPIs you need to to monitor closely and you know to, to assess how successful the, the scaling process is and also make decisions on what needs to be redone, reviewed, what needs to be killed, what needs to be invested on. Mm-hmm. It's a
0: great question, and and it's an important question because if you get it's all about balance. If you get the balance wrong and you go too fast or too slow, the consequences are not good. Mm-hmm. The performance will not be good, and so KPIs are really important. One thing you're looking for with scalability, obviously, is the growth rate. Yeah, you're looking for what's the velocity in the business? How quickly are things being done? And yeah. and how fast are we growing? All right, you know, are we able to maintain or expand on that growth rate? So that's one factor, but Growth rate alone is, is dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. If you grow fast, but you start to drive up your customer acquisition costs with an inefficient model, for example, then you're, you may end up in the wrong place. Yeah. So you have to look at efficiency and productivity in addition to, to the growth rate or the velocity of the business. So efficiency can be measured by things like customer acquisition cost or, or cost of sales as a percentage of revenue. That's pretty easy to, to measure. And of course, productivity, you can measure as well on, for example, a per head basis. Yeah. How much is each salesperson on average mm-hmm. able to generate? So those are, are a couple of things to, to look at. Behind them in the bigger picture should be the where do you plan to get to from a cost benefit perspective? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because over time, as you scale a business, the, one of the big goals is uh, economy of scale as, as you, you're not just trying to grow your business, but you're, you're trying to, to, over time, make it more efficient. Because often when you're a small startup and you're using a direct model, it's not very efficient, but it's how you get started. Mm-hmm. And then when you fast forward to the future, when you have a big company and lots of partners and an ecosystem, it can be a much more cost efficient and time efficient model. So I think you look for those things as financial metrics. However, one of the other most important things to scaling a business is people. And if you only manage by the spreadsheet, by the, mm-hmm. by the financial metrics, you run a big risk of going wrong with people. Because, of course, as you manage a sales team, for example, you have to think about what are the targets and what are the quotas and are people able to earn a good living? Yeah. To- are the targets set high enough that you're incentivizing, the, you know, you're headed in the right direction, but not so high that it seems That's unattainable, percent, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's demoralizing for people because of, so you have to get the, the blend right. And that comes down to a, a bigger picture formula, which is how many people do I need in what areas to target which customers yeah. to get and getting that, that formula of the business team right, the, the productivity model correct, is really important. And the, back to your KPIs, one of the things that you need to look at is employee retention mm-hmm. and employee development. If you're getting the balance right with your sales team and, and more broadly with other people on the team, marketing, special management, basically. How yeah. you manage talent and retain the talent in the business? If you're doing a good job, it can be a strong driver for growth. And you will see that in, in high employee retention numbers. You'll also see that in terms of development for people, people in a, in a very strong, productive organization will have the opportunity to progress in their career. And so my experience is the more you pay attention to it and the more effort you put into doing that right, the more the scalability and the growth comes in a healthy, and productive way. And so I think you have to think
1: about some of those softer functions as well. But softer is it's actually, you know, we, we, we are very big on promoting from within, okay? But if you think about it, our, our entry point is BDR. So yes. someone who's got very limited experience, and when you promote them, it's often a lot of work to get them to elevate themselves to the next role, okay? So it may take six months to get someone to actually elevate themselves. So it's a six-month training to mm-hmm. move to the next role when you could recruit someone in two months that could come and just bring ideas of what they learned in their previous organization. But we do believe it's important to do because it creates culture. Yes. And, and I think there is nothing more beautiful than someone coming into the team and sitting with a head of marketing or head of sales or head of operation or team leader and all those people that will speak to them through the recruitment process yes. have been people in that seat in the last three years, four years, five years that have been promoted within the business. And if that individual sitting there is probably looking at us as an organization or the other one, and maybe the other one paid them a little bit more, they would may say actually it's probably better to be in this one because I may be treated in a better way, mm-hmm. and I don't just want a job and I want a career. Right. So it's about right. driving that sort of things as well for us. And I think we call them soft, but I think they are so important.
0: I was oh. on that one. I totally agree with you. I tol- and there is nothing better than seeing somebody come into the organization as a BDR and oh. in a year or a year and a half. Have the opportunity to move into a sales role. It's a big jump, as you pointed out. It's one where you see a certain amount of failure because it's a it's a pretty different job, and and it's sometimes a big jump for people. It's about getting your timing right, but yeah, you get the timing right. But it's also very smart because you do build a strong culture. You're also in a great position to assess does that person have the innate capability, the talent to do that. And if the rest of the team supports the model, yep. they are going to be a safety net for that person as they make that jump. Yep. to try to help them along. And, and when they're struggling and, and they're looking for answers, they, they get answers from absolutely. their colleagues. And when you're absolutely right. You can create such a strong culture when you, when you create that environment. Yep. And it, it's self-reinforcing. And, it, and you develop a lot of momentum and esprit de corps. And, and it becomes really powerful. It is easier and faster to hire somebody outside who has already done the job but it is often better, stronger, and lower risk to do it internally if you
1: do it the right way. And if you just promote something from someone from within, you probably would expect them to stay for at least twice longer than someone from the outside. Someone, right. who makes, someone who makes a lot of horizontal move versus someone with does vertical move. That's what I look at on CVs. Yes. When people come and say, well, you say in that company, have you been promoted once in your life? No. Oh, you've done nine months there, nine months there, 12 months there, six months there. <laughs> You are in sales. Why do they if you are good, why are they not keeping you?
0: Right. <laughs> why are you not staying and progressing?
1: Very unlucky. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's true. anyway, so that's, that's so true. That's that's a, that's a funny story. So we, we are running out of time now and I know that you need to catch a plane. So thank you very much for coming with us today and actually doing the, the podcast and recording the podcast in person. But if anyone wants to get in touch with you, Chris, to either carry on talking about some of the topics we had today pick your brain up on something, discuss about fuse and what you're doing. What's the best way to get hold
0: of you? Ah, that's great. First of all, thank you for having me. I'm happy pleasure. to be here. It's been a pleasure as well. It's, it's great to compare notes with your background and a shared love of sales and growth. A bit of and passion. Yes, a lot of passion. We're looking it's, at each
1: other in the eyes when we're doing It's fantastic. It's,
0: yeah, it's a great conversation. So thank you. Best way to get in touch with me is either to reach out to me at Fuse. Yeah. Everybody there knows how to find me. Or on LinkedIn, I am
1: C Doggett. And that's okay. T. Perfect. Well, it was a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much, Chris.
0: Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net. You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.